Chapter Six of Cranford by Elizabeth Cleghorn Gaskell, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter Six, Poor Peter. Poor Peter's career lay before him rather pleasantly mapped out by kind friends, but Bonus Bernardus non vidit omnia in his map too. He was to win honors at the Shrewsbury School and carry them thick to Cambridge, and after that a living awaited him, the gift of his godfather, Sir Peter Arley. Poor Peter. His lot in life was very different to what his friends had hoped and planned. Miss Matty told me all about it, and I think it was a relief when she had done so. He was the darling of his mother, who seemed to dote on all her children, though she was, perhaps, a little afraid of Deborah's superior acquirements. Deborah was the favourite of her father, and when Peter disappointed him, she became his pride. The sole honour Peter brought away from Shrewsbury was the reputation of being the best good fellow that ever was, and of being the captain of the school in the art of practical joking. His father was disappointed, but set about remedying the matter in a manly way. He could not afford to send Peter to read with any tutor, but he could read with him himself, and Miss Matty told me much of the awful preparations in the way of dictionaries and lexicons that were made in her father's study the morning Peter began. "'My poor mother,' said she, "'I remember how she used to stand in the hall, "'just near enough the study door, "'to catch the tone of my father's voice. "'I could tell in a moment if all was going right by her face. "'And it did go right, for a long time. "'What went wrong at last?' I said. "'That tiresome Latin, I dare say. "'No, it was not the Latin. "'Peter was in high favour with my father, "'for he worked up well for him.' but he seemed to think that the Cranford people might be joked about, and made fun of, and they did not like it. Nobody does. He was always hoaxing them. Hoaxing is not a pretty word, my dear, and I hope you won't tell your father I used it, for I should not like him to think I was not choice in my language, after living with such a woman as Deborah. And be sure you never use it yourself. I don't know how it slipped out of my mouth, except that I was thinking of poor Peter, and it was always his expression." but he was a very gentlemanly boy in many things. He was like dear Captain Brown in always being ready to help any old person or a child. Still, he did like joking and making fun, and he seemed to think the old ladies in Cranford would believe anything. There were many old ladies living here then. We are principally ladies now, I think, but we are not so old as the ladies used to be when I was a girl. I could laugh to think of some of Peter's jokes— "'No, my dear, I won't tell you them, because they might not shock you as they ought to, and they were very shocking. He even took in my father once, by dressing himself up as a lady that was passing through the town and wished to see the rector of Cranford, who had published that admirable assize sermon. Peter said he was awfully frightened himself when he saw how my father took it all in, and even offered to copy out all his Napoleon Bonaparte sermons for her—him, I mean—no, her, for Peter was a lady then.' He told me he was more terrified than he ever was before, all the time my father was speaking. He did not think my father would have believed him, and yet if he had not it would have been a sad thing for Peter. As he was, he was none so glad of it, for my father kept him hard at work copying out all those twelve Bonaparte sermons for the lady. That was for Peter himself, you know. He was the lady. And once, when he wanted to go fishing, Peter said, "'Confound the woman!' "'Very bad language, my dear, but Peter was not always so guarded as he should have been. "'My father was so angry with him, it nearly frightened me out of my wits, "'and yet I could hardly keep from laughing at the little curtsies Peter kept making, "'quite slyly, whenever my father spoke of the lady's excellent taste and sound discrimination. "'Did Miss Jenkins know of these tricks?' said I. "'Oh, no! Deborah would have been much too shocked. 
"'No, no one knew but me. I wish I had known of Peter's plans, but sometimes he did not tell me. He used to say the old ladies in the town wanted something to talk about, but I don't think they did. They had the St. James's Chronicle three times a week, just as we have now, and we have plenty to say, and I remember the clacking noise there always was when some of the ladies got together. But probably schoolboys talk more than ladies. At last there was a terrible sad thing happened. Miss Matty got up, went to the door, and opened it. No one was there. She rang the bell for Martha, and when Martha came her mistress told her to go for eggs to a farm at the other end of the town. "'I will lock the door after you, Martha. You are not afraid to go, are you?' "'No, ma'am, not at all. Jem Hearn will be only too proud to go with me.' Miss Matty drew herself up, and as soon as we were alone she wished that Martha had more maidenly reserve. "'We'll put out the candle, my dear. We can talk just as well by firelight, you know. There. Well, you see, Deborah had gone from home for a fortnight or so. It was a very still, quiet day, I remember, overhead, and the lilacs were all in flower, so I suppose it was spring.' My father had gone out to see some sick people in the parish. I recollect seeing him leave the house with his wig and shovel-hat and cane. What possessed our poor Peter I don't know. He had the sweetest temper, and yet he always seemed to like to plague Deborah. She never laughed at his jokes, and thought him ungenteel, and not careful enough about improving his mind, and that vexed him. Well, he went to her room, it seems, and dressed himself in her old gown and shawl and bonnet, just the things she used to wear in Cranford, and was known by everywhere, and he made the pillow into a little—you are sure you locked the door, my dear, for I should not like any one to hear—into—into into a little baby with long white clothes. It was only, as he told me afterwards, to make something to talk about in the town. He never thought of it as affecting Deborah. And he went and walked up and down in the Filbert Walk, just half hidden by the rails and half seen, and he cuddled his pillow just like a baby and talked to it all the nonsense people do. Oh dear! And my father came stepping stately up the street, as he always did, and what should he see but a little black crowd of people, I dare say as many as twenty, all peeping through his garden rails. So he thought at first they were only looking at a new rhododendron that was in full bloom and that he was very proud of, and he walked slower that they might have more time to admire. And he wondered if he could make out a sermon from the occasion, and thought perhaps there was some relation between the rhododendrons and the lilies of the field. My poor father! When he came nearer he began to wonder that they did not see him, but their heads were all so close together, peeping and peeping. My father was amongst them, meaning, he said, to ask them to walk into the garden with him and admire the beautiful vegetable production, when, oh, my dear, I tremble to think of it, he looked through the rails himself and saw—I don't know what he thought he saw, but old Clare told me his face went quite grey-white with anger, and his eyes blazed out under his frowning black brows, and he spoke out, oh, so terribly, and bade them all stop where they were, not one of them to go, not one of them to stir a step, and swift as light he was in at the garden door, and down the filbert walk, and seized hold of poor Peter and tore his clothes off his back— bonnet, shawl, gown, and all, and threw the pillow among the people over the railings, and then he was very, very angry indeed, and before all the people he lifted up his cane and flogged Peter. My dear, that boy's trick on that sunny day, when all seemed going straight and well, broke my mother's heart and changed my father for life. It did, indeed. Old Clare said Peter looked as white as my father, and stood as still as a statue to be flogged, and my father struck hard. When my father stopped to take breath, Peter said, "'Have you done enough, sir?' quite hoarsely, and st 
still standing quite quiet. I don't know what my father said, or if he said anything. But old Clare said, Peter turned to where the people outside the railing were, and made them a low bow, as grand and grave as any gentleman, and then walked slowly into the house. I was in the store-room, helping my mother to make cowslip wine. I cannot abide the wine now, nor the scent of the flowers. They turn me sick and faint, as they did that day, when Peter came in, looking as haughty as any man, indeed, looking like a man, not like a boy. Mother, he said, I am come to say, God bless you for ever. I saw his lips quiver as he spoke, and I think he durst not say anything more loving, for the purpose that was in his heart. She looked at him rather frightened and wondering, and asked him what was to do. He did not smile or speak, but put his arms around her and kissed her as if he did not know how to leave off, and before she could speak again he was gone. We talked it over, and could not understand it, and she bade me to go and seek my father, and ask what it was all about. I found him walking up and down, looking very highly displeased. "'Tell your mother I have flogged Peter, and that he richly deserved it.' I durst not ask any more questions. When I told my mother, she sat down, quite faint, for a minute. I remember a few days after, I saw the poor, withered cowslip flowers thrown out into the leaf-heap, to decay there and die. There was no making of cowslip wine that year at the rectory, nor, indeed, ever after. Presently my mother went to my father. I know I thought of Queen Esther and King Ahasuerus, for my mother was very pretty and delicate-looking, and my father looked as terrible as King Ahasuerus. Some time after they came out together, and then my mother told me what had happened, and that she was going up to Peter's room at my father's desire, though she was not to tell Peter this, to talk the matter over with him. But no Peter was there. We looked over the house. No Peter was there. Even my father, who had not liked to join in the search at first, helped us before long. The rectory was a very old house, steps up into a room, steps down into a room, all through. At first my mother went calling, low and soft, as if to reassure the poor boy. "'Peter! Peter, dear, it's only me!' But by and by, as the servants came back from the errands my father had sent them, in different directions, to find where Peter was, as we found he was not in the garden, nor the hayloft, nor anywhere about, my mother's cry grew louder and wilder. "'Peter! Peter, my darling, where are you?' For then she felt and understood that that long kiss meant some sad kind of good-bye. The afternoon went on, my mother never resting, but seeking again and again in every possible place that had been looked into twenty times before, nay, that she had looked into over and over again herself. My father sat with his head in his hands, not speaking except when his messengers came in, bringing no tidings. Then he lifted up his face, so strong and sad, and told them to go again in some new direction. My mother kept passing from room to room, in and out of the house, and moving noiselessly, but never ceasing. Neither she nor my father durst leave the house, which was the meeting-place for all the messengers. At last, and it was nearly dark, my father rose up. He took hold of my mother's arm as she came with wild, sad pace through one door, and quickly towards another. She started at the touch of his hand, for she had forgotten all in the world but Peter. "'Molly,' he said, "'I did not think all this would happen.' He looked into her face for comfort, her poor face all wild and white, for neither she nor my father had dared to acknowledge, much less act upon, the terror that was in their hearts, lest Peter should have made away with himself. My father saw no conscious look in his wife's hot, dreary eyes, and he missed the sympathy that she had always been ready to give him. Strong man as he was, and at the dumb despair in her face his tears began to flow. 
but when she saw this a gentle sorrow came over her countenance, and she said, "'Dearest John, don't cry. Come with me and we'll find him,' almost as cheerfully as if she knew where he was. And she took my father's great hand in her little soft one, and led him along, the tears dropping as he walked on that same unceasing weary walk, from room to room, through house and garden. Oh, how I wished for Deborah! I had no time for crying, for now all seemed to depend on me. I wrote for Deborah to come home. I sent a message privately to that same Mr. Holbrook's house—poor Mr. Holbrook, you know who I mean. I don't mean I sent a message to him, but I sent one that I could trust to know if Peter was at his house. For at one time Mr. Holbrook was an occasional visitor at the rectory. You know he was Miss Pole's cousin, and he had been very kind to Peter, and taught him how to fish. He was very kind to everybody, and I thought Peter might have gone off there. But Mr. Holbrook was from home, and Peter had never been seen. It was night now, but the doors were all wide open, and my father and mother walked on and on. It was more than an hour since he had joined her, and I don't believe they had ever spoken all that time. I was getting the parlour fire lighted, and one of the servants was preparing tea, for I wanted them to have something to eat and drink and warm them, when old Clare came to speak to me. I have borrowed the nets from the weir, Miss Matty. Shall we drag the ponds to-night, or wait for the morning? I remember staring in his face to gather his meaning, and when I did I laughed out loud. The horror of that new thought, our bright, darling Peter, cold and dark and dead. I remember the ring of my own laugh now. The next day Deborah was at home before I was myself again. She would not have been so weak as to give way as I had done, but my screams, my horrible laughter had ended in crying, had roused my dear sweet mother, whose poor, wandering wits were called back and collected as soon as a child needed her care. She and Deborah sat by my bedside. I knew by the looks of each that there had been no news of Peter, no awful, ghastly news, which was what I had most dreaded in my dull state between sleeping and waking. The same result of all the searching— that had brought something of the same relief to my mother, to whom I am sure the thought that Peter might even then be hanging dead in some of the familiar home-places had caused that never-ending walk of yesterday. Her soft eyes never were the same again after that night. They always had a restless, craving look, as if seeking for what they could not find. Oh, it was an awful time, coming down like a thunderbolt on the still sunny day when the lilacs were all in bloom. "'Where was Mr. Peter?' said I. He had made his way to Liverpool, and there was war then, and some of the king's ships lay off the mouth of the Mercy, and they were only too glad to have a fine, likely boy such as him, five foot nine he was, come to offer himself. The captain wrote to my father, and Peter wrote to my mother, "'Stay, those letters will be somewhere here.' We lighted the candle, and found the captain's letter and Peter's too, and we also found a little simple begging letter from Mrs. Jenkins to Peter, addressed to him at the house of an old schoolfellow, whither she fancied he might have gone. They had returned it unopened, and unopened it had remained ever since, having been inadvertently put among other letters of that time. This is it. My dearest Peter, you did not think that we should be so very sorry as we are, I know, or you would never have gone away. You are too good. Your father sits and sighs till my heart aches to hear him. He cannot hold up his head for grief, and yet he only did what he thought was right. Perhaps he has been too severe, and perhaps I have not been kind enough, but God knows how we love you, my dear only boy. Don looks so sorry you are gone. Come back and make us happy, who love you so much. I know you will come back. But Peter did not come back. That spring day was the last time he ever saw his mother's face. 
The writer of the letter, the last, the only person who had ever seen what was written in it, was dead long ago, and I, a stranger, not born at the time when this occurrence took place, was the one to open it. The captain's letter summoned the father and mother to Liverpool instantly, if they wished to see their boy, and by some of the wild chances of life, the captain's letter had been detained somewhere, somehow. Miss Matty went on, and it was race-time, and all the post-horses at Cranford were gone to the races, but my father and mother set off in our own gig, and, oh, my dear, they were too late, the ship was gone, and now read Peter's letter to my mother. It was full of love and sorrow and pride in his new profession, and a sore sense of his disgrace in the eyes of the people at Cranford, but ending with a passionate entreaty that she would come and see him before he left the mercy. Mother, we may go into battle. I hope we shall, and lick those French, but I must see you again before that time. And she was too late, said Miss Matty, too late. We sat in silence, pondering on the full meaning of those sad, sad words. At length I asked Miss Matty to tell me how her mother bore it. Oh, she said, she was patience itself. She had never been strong, and this weakened her terribly. My father used to sit looking at her, far more sad than she was. He seemed as if he could look at nothing else when she was by, and he was so humble, so very gentle now. He would, perhaps, speak in his old way, laying down the law, as it were, and then, in a minute or two, he would come round and put his hand on our shoulders, and ask us, in a low voice, if he had said anything to hurt us. I did not wonder at his speaking so to Deborah, for she was so clever, but I could not bear to hear him talking so to me. But, you see, he saw what we did not, that it was killing my mother. Yes, killing her. Put out the candle, my dear, I can talk better in the dark. For she was but a frail woman, and ill-fitted to stand the fright and shock she had gone through, and she would smile at him and comfort him, not in words, but in her looks and tones, which were always cheerful when he was there. And she would speak of how she thought Peter stood a good chance of being an admiral very soon, he was so brave and clever, and how she thought of seeing him in his navy uniform, and what sort of hats admirals wore, and how very much more fit he was to be a sailor than a clergyman, and all in that way, just to make my father think she was quite glad of what came of that unlucky morning's work, and the flogging which was always in his mind, as we all knew. But, oh, my dear, the bitter, bitter crying she had when she was alone, and at last, as she grew weaker, she could not keep her tears in when Deborah or me was by, and would give us message after message for Peter. His ship had gone to the Mediterranean, or somewhere down there, and then he was ordered off to India, and there was no overland route then. But she still said that no one knew where their death lay in wait, and that we were not to think hers was near. We did not think it, but we knew it, as we saw her fading away. Well, my dear, it's very foolish of me, I know, when in all likelihood I am so near seeing her again. And only think, love, the very day after her death, for she did not live quite a twelvemonth after Peter went away, the very day after, came a parcel for her from India, from her poor boy. It was a large, soft, white Indian shawl, with just a little narrow border all round, just what my mother would have liked. We thought it might rouse my father, for he had sat with her hand in his all night long, so Deborah took it into him, and Peter's letter to her and all. At first he took no notice, and we tried to make a kind of light, careless talk about the shawl, opening it out and admiring it. Then suddenly he got up and spoke. She shall be buried in it, he said. Peter shall have that comfort, and she would have liked it. Well, perhaps it was not reasonable, but what could we do or say? One gives people in grief their own way. He took it up and felt it. 
It's just such a shawl as she would have wished for when she was married, and her mother did not give it to her. I did not know of it till after, or she should have had it. She should, but she shall have it now. My mother looked so lovely in her death. She was always pretty, and now she looked fair, waxen, and young, as she stood trembling and shivering by her. We decked her in the long, soft folds. She lay smiling as if pleased, and her people came, all Cranford came, to beg to see her, for they had loved her dearly, as well they might, and the countrywoman brought posies, old Clare's wife brought some white violets, and begged they might lie on her breast. Deborah said to me, the day of my mother's funeral, that if she had a hundred offers she would never marry and leave my father. It was not very likely she would have so many. I don't know that she had one, but it was not less to her credit to say so. She was such a daughter to my father as I think there never was before or since. His eyes failed him, and she read book after book, and wrote, and copied, and was always at his service in any parish business. She could do many more things than my poor mother could. She even once wrote a letter to the bishop for my father. But he missed my mother sorely. The whole parish noticed it. Not that he was less active. I think he was more so, and more patient in helping every one. I did all I could to set Deborah at liberty to be with him, for I knew I was good for little, and that my best work in the world was to do odd jobs quietly, and set others at liberty. But my father was a changed man. Did Mr. Peter ever come home? Yes, once. He came home a lieutenant. He did not get to be admiral. And he and my father were such friends. My father took him into every house in the parish. He was so proud of him. He never walked out without Peter's arm to lean upon. Deborah used to smile. I don't think we ever laughed again after my mother's death, and say she was quite put in a corner. Not but what my father always wanted her, when there was letter-writing or reading to be done, or anything to be settled. And then, said I, after a pause, then Peter went to sea again, and by and by my father died, blessing us both, and thanking Deborah for all she had been to him, and of course our circumstances were changed, and instead of living at the rectory, and keeping three maids and a man, we had to come to this small house, and be content with the servant of all work. But as Deborah used to say, we have always lived genteelly, even if circumstances have compelled us to simplicity. Poor Deborah! And Mr. Peter? asked I. Oh, there was some great war in India. I forget what they call it, and we have never heard of Peter since then. I believe he is dead myself, and it sometimes fidgets me that we have never put on mourning for him. And then again, when I sit by myself, and all the house is still, I think I hear his step coming up the street, and my heart begins to flutter and beat, but the sound always goes past, and Peter never comes. That's Martha back? No, I'll go, my dear. I can always find my way in the dark, you know and a blow of fresh air at the door will do my head good, and it's rather got a trick of aching. So she pattered off. I had lighted the candle to give the room a cheerful appearance against her return. Was it Martha? asked I. Yes, and I am rather uncomfortable, for I heard such a strange noise just as I was opening the door. Where? I asked, for her eyes were round with a fright. In the street, just outside. It sounded like— Talking? I put in as she hesitated a little. No, kissing. End of chapter 6. Read by Sibella Denton. For more information, please visit LibriVox.org.